Southern Skies. Online Media. Playing Crazy Down Under's coverage of the 2013 Australian International Air Show is proudly sponsored by Jet Ride Australia, Oz Runways, Red Baron Adventures and Sennheiser. In conjunction with Avplan, a classic flight bag, Eco 2000 and World Flight Planner. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, our Avalon 2013 Series Day 4 wrap-up, and uh, boy, another busy day. In fact, guys, I reckon this is probably the busiest day we've had. We've been all over Avalon Airport today. Yeah, we've been all over Avalon Airport. We've recorded a bit of stuff, but honestly, I think the output's been a little lower today on the, uh, the recording. Well... Okay, maybe it was just my output, because I think I uh, spent a bit of time uh, enjoying the show and taking some photos. Well, I'll tell you what, speaking of enjoying the show, there was an aircraft, a fighter jet, up in the skies above Avalon today as the uh, the clouds cleared away, finally, that was doing some things that uh, I don't think any plane should do naturally. That was uh, an amazing display by the Raptor today. Oh, absolutely incredible. Finally got to see the high show, uh, no clouds, and yeah, uh, he put on an incredible display, uh, lots of uh, vertical manoeuvres, including the tail slide, the hover uh, the what looks like a flat spin but uh, really apparently is a 180 uh, rudder a rudder turn uh, just boot the rudder in and around they go uh, yeah absolutely amazing to see and uh, very incredible aircraft and very noisy yeah it was very noisy although you know Grant I gotta say I don't know that that jet was it didn't sound much noisier to me than any of the Super Hornets just my personal opinion I thought they all sounded as noisy as each other what did you guys think well I think the uh, the Rhino guys took your challenge yeah, I think they did. They, they made it louder. They, 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 they definitely, the other day when we uh, interviewed them and uh, threw out there that four rhinos were sounding almost but not quite as loud as one F-22, the comment was, really? We'll fix that. Yes. And I think they did. <laughs> so we can take credit for that, you reckon? Oh, it, it, I don't know if it was the way the wind was blowing or I don't know if they uh, just cranked it that little bit harder. It definitely sounded louder. Well, I'll tell you what, it was the first day that was open to the public today and the crowds did come in. I'll tell you what, if uh, if the weather gods were looking after us, well, if the weather, weather gods weren't looking after us on the first day of Avalon, they uh, they certainly turned it on today and uh, some great sunshine. It must have been a lot of sun because I am burnt again. Yeah, well done, dude. Uh, it's called sunscreen. Yeah, well, I did lather up with sunscreen, but apparently not. I'm going to have to bathe in it tomorrow, I think, yeah, before we just go. Just frequently. Well, coming up in this episode, we'll be talking to the uh, the tech crew from the F-22. We'll be talking to the uh, display pilot, and uh, you can find out all about uh, how he looks at the display and uh, what it's like to be an F-22 Raptor pilot, and uh, he compares it to uh, flying F-15s, which is what he was doing before that. Uh, Damien Rose also went over and talked to the uh, Cub Crafters people about the Carbon Cub and uh, some of the uh, developments that's been happening with that aircraft, I guess, since the last time we spoke to them, which would have been a couple of years ago now, back at Natfly. And uh, for something a little different, well, uh, a bit of glamour we went down and spoke to the Brightling Wingwalkers today. Yes, we did. Uh, we got the opportunity to uh, go and have a chat with the team. Uh, chatted with Dave, the pilot, and with the three lovely ladies. Uh, absolutely tiny, only about fifty to sixty kilos. I think they're, they're all three of them uh, fifty kilos each. Uh, that is one of the requirements. And uh, if you think that they're tiny and could therefore be beaten, no. As they pointed out, by the end of the season, they've been pushing against that slipstream of about one hundred and fifty miles an hour. Uh, to do all their manoeuvres. They're actually pretty strong young ladies, and I think they could probably... uh 
take us all on in an arm wrestle. Yeah, I'll tell you what, they were very small. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a big guy and uh, I felt intimidatingly huge against those two, those three women, actually. Well, Steve, I think it's pretty sure that you'll never see either of us up on top of one of those wings. I think if I tried to get on it, I'd break the damn thing. Yeah, I think that, I reckon we could do wing walking in a C-17 or something like that. Yeah, I've done that a very long time ago and it was one of the few wings that would support me. <laughs> You'd have to knock me out. Like Mr. T and the A-teams, the only way he'd get me up on the wings doing that, I'll tell you what. I'd love to give it a go. <laughs> you also spoke to uh, Stuart Wilson from uh, Aero Magazine today, something we've been looking at doing for several years. It's uh, a good thing you finally got to do that. <laughs> yeah, we'd meet up with each other at various aviation events. So, that's right, we were going to do that interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we finally managed to get five, ten minutes to sit down and have a good chat. Now, uh, Timbo's tarmac and in the keyhole with Papa Smurf is back and uh, with a little bit of a twist this time, ATC Ben, you actually uh, went out there and did that this time. Grant, what were you doing? Slacking off or something? Um, I actually was spending a bit of time in the blister watching the uh, F-16 and uh, the couple of the aerobatic displays and uh, also the Raptor. But no, basically the last couple of days I've been flat out running all around the place and the boys have been very busy on the tarmac. So it just seemed like the right time to send ATC Ben down because uh, the timing was good, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Papa Smurf and Timbo were very understanding about uh, the fact that you weren't there, weren't they, Ben? Absolutely, yeah. They didn't comment on that at all. No, I think they actually appreciated it. Now, just a quick editor's note here for the F-22 interviews. Of course, we're very uh, excited to have them on the show. Unfortunately, there was some uh, electrical interference around. We think it might have actually been radar or something. We're not sure, but it did interfere with our radio mics just a little. So uh, we just uh, ask your indulgence there, but it, it certainly doesn't affect the quality of the content. So day four, let's get into it. We're standing here on the combat jet tarmac in front of the beautiful F-22 Raptor with Master Sergeant Bo Brewer. Bo, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you for having us. Mate, uh, we're going to uh, pop through a few questions. As the uh, Master Sergeant in charge of the uh, deployment of the F-22 and the uh, looking after the birds and keeping them going, we've got a lot of questions for you. Well, you know some. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, I'm glad to have you guys out here. It's a beautiful day, and I couldn't imagine a better setting. How long have you been uh, with the United States Air Force? I've been in the United States Air Force for 18 years now. Okay, what got you into the Air Force? Well, after uh, I graduated from high school, I went to college uh, playing baseball, and then after an injury, uh, went back home and not really sure which direction my life was going to go and had not finished college. Uh, the military opened up a lot of different avenues to see the world and pay for my college tuition, so I joined. Sounds like a good reason. Then you went straight into engineering and things like that. For a lot of the Australian people, they'll know what I'm getting ready to say. A lot of Americans these days, especially the young lads that work underneath me, they don't know. I started off on the F-111 Aardvark. A classic aircraft. That was a classic, heavy, ginormous aircraft. So uh, what roles were you doing on that? Uh, I started off as a, a crew chief, a apprentice at the time. Uh, pretty much uh, I was in charge of just like a NASCAR uh, crew chief would. Uh, tires, oil servicing, oversaw m- majority of the minor maintenances with my particular aircraft um, and just kept it airworthy and safe as all, at all times. And from the F-111 starting off at that point, how'd you progress? Well, first I went over to the RQ-1 Predator, worked on that for a year. And that's kind of a nice little aircraft, remind me of uh, remote control aircraft, which it is. <laughs> from there I moved over to F-16 Fighting Falcons, uh, worked on those for nine straight years before being reassigned to the F-22 Raptor. Now you say you were reassigned to it, is it something that you had to put into? Is it something that you've streamed to? I imagine it would be quite competitive to want to work on the F-22. It is. Uh, what happens is assignments availability come out and it's by location of aircraft. As you move up in rank, we become 
uh, masters of all trades, and it allows us to open up more doors to more aircraft. Uh, the younger guys stick to one particular aircraft until they are very knowledgeable on it. Uh, we don't want to keep moving people around because if they don't ever learn one aircraft, then next thing you know, they're a bunch of little bit of information and not be able to stream it all together. So what happened, uh, at my rank, I was able to work on all fighter aircraft in our arsenal. And then what happened, Langley was on the list along with many other bases with 16s, 15s. Um, but I had been wanting to work on the 22 for quite a while. I jumped on top of it and uh, moved a few months later. So how long with the F-22 was it? Uh, I came on to the F-22 program in January of 2008. And you started as a crew chief or...? No, at the time, uh, my rank was still pretty high. So what we call production, uh, we pretty much oversee all operations on the aircraft in an aircraft maintenance unit of about 25 aircraft. I moved into that position. I was a master sergeant at the time. You're talking about your experience with the older jets, particularly the F-111, obviously 60s technology, moving on to the F-16, you know, 1970s, 1980s technology. Really, without getting overly specific, obviously, is there much commonality in any any of these jets when it comes to looking after them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've had a little bit of working knowledge with all of our aircraft in our inventory. And when I first got onto this aircraft, what I quickly noticed that our designers took everything that was great about a particular aircraft, each one, and they all tied it in this aircraft. It has a little bit of everything, which is amazing amazing to us because that allows us to take the past, put it to the future knowledge. And then I'm excited about what the 35 is going to look like and what potentially is going to come from there if I stay in the military that much longer. I'm approaching retirement. Let's have a chat about the F-22, the whole stealth concept, the way you can uh, vector those nozzles somewhat at the back. A lot of complexity, a lot of computers. What's involved in uh, keeping the bird in the air? Believe it or not, this aircraft, whenever it flies, we do the minor uh, look over for the aircraft. But believe it or not, this aircraft runs diagnostics on its entire internal system. Systems. And anything that is wrong with it, it'll immediately tell us and tell the pilot. So it allows us to get a jump start on preventative maintenance and try to get this aircraft back in the air. So what kind of systems have we got on board that we can run through in terms of the types of engines? I've noticed the weapon bays are open at the moment. Uh, what can you tell us about all that? Well, we'll start at the back and move way, our way forward. The back of this aircraft, they're Pratt Whitney F-119 engines. Uh, each one is capable of putting out 70,000 pounds of thrust or for uh, the people that go by the metric system, over 310 kilonewtons of thrust. Um, These uh, thrust vectoring nozzles allow the aircraft to maneuver quite better than a typical traditional aircraft. It also allows us at lower speeds to slow it, uh, to get at lower speeds because the thrust vectoring can actually angle the thrust and allow this aircraft to slow itself down quite a bit. Weaponry on board, this aircraft can carry any combination of eight missiles, which are a combination of AIM-120s, uh, air, air rams, uh, the guided missiles, or two he- AIM-9 heat-seeking missiles. Or we can uh, put up underneath the main weapons bay two 450-kilogram uh, pers- GPS-guided bombs um, or, you know, 2,000-pound bombs for us. Okay. So you can actually do a bit of air-to-ground with this? We can. Uh, this aircraft is a multi-role aircraft. Uh, air-to-air supremacy is its a main role. However, though, it has a pretty awesome job at a uh, doing air-to-ground missions as well. Okay, so like the F-15 was before it became the E with the second-seater, it, uh, it it can actually do some level of uh, multi-role there. Absolutely. Now, in terms of the fuel and, and maintaining that, I guess that's mostly in the centre of the uh, body between the engines and, and behind the cockpit and so on? Oh, this aircraft pretty much, uh, if it doesn't have where the cockpit is and where the uh, weaponries goes and where the engines are, including the wings, everything is, has fuel storage with the exception of the vertical tail. Okay. You mentioned the wing. It uh, looks like a a pretty impressive piece of kit there. And having seen the aircraft flying in all different angles, 
Is there anything special that they've done with it? Is it pretty much standard with drooping leading edges and slats and so on? It's one of the things that you can't really see from a straight-on view. This aircraft, the wing of this aircraft, is enormous. I can't tell you how large it is because um, I don't rightfully know. <laughs> I've never did the square inch measurement, but what I will tell you that one surface of our wing is that equal to almost the entire surfaces of the F-16 just one. Now you ask what that allows. Well that allows our aircraft to provide a lot more lift so it's lower speeds but the way it's streamlined with our horizontal stabilizer it allows at higher speeds for the wind to flow over them very smoothly without any drag. It's obviously a very active control service. We've seen some amazing things from the Raptor here. So, something the likes of which we've not seen here in Australia before in terms of handling. So it's obviously an integrated package where the wings are constantly adjusting, thrust is constantly adjusting, and the pilot's just basically able to just point it where he wants and set it. Absolutely. I mean, this aircraft, what it does is it takes a pilot's input and it determines the best overall probability of how to get from point A to point B. So if he's wanting to roll and then pull up, the wings between the leading edge flaps, the ailerons and flapperons, and along with the horizontal stab, along with the thrust vectoring, will all work together to make this the smoothest transition possible. So, so quite an impressive computer on board managing that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this thing is just, it's really phenomenal of how much integration it actually has. Uh, it takes a lot of the actual pilot ability, and it just amplifies it. Now, do you have folks who are uh, more specialized in various areas of the aircraft, or are all the boys on your team able to look after all the gear here? Oh, no. Uh, we actually separated. Um, what happens is we have uh, one of our career field, uh, we have a crew chief. He's much like I explained uh, what I was. He's in charge of a lot of the oil servicing, maintenance of the aircraft, tires, uh, the mechanical parts. When it comes to the electrical system, electrical parts, we have what we call avionics specialists. And that is his sole purpose in life is to maintain that op those systems and make sure that they're reliable. Okay. And as you can imagine with this aircraft, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, computers can be a little flaky and software can be interesting. So uh, I imagine that makes things uh, rather interesting. Uh, it can at times. I mean, just like with anything, uh, you got to remember, it is mechanical. Uh, mechanical things do tend to break. Uh, however, as you've seen in the past, as we progress into the future, a lot of these mechanical things are becoming better designed, and they tend to last a little bit longer, which is the way we are. Uh, with this aircraft costing $140 million, we need the best parts and the best people on it at all times. And this way, preventative maintenance is key to keep these things uh, in the safest manner and actively flying. Which does lead to the uh, inevitable point of, uh, you know, things do happen, some things do go wrong. And especially when it's a whole new design like this, there's so much new technology in here. And uh, the dreaded oxygen system has come up a number of times in the press. But everyone was looking at the uh, oxygen delivery, but it turns out that there was something a little more to it than that. Are you able to um, talk to us about what happened there? Uh, we are. The, the pilots in the F-22 wear just more than a, a typical G-suit that your average pilot wears. They wear an upper G-suit as well as a lower G-suit. And this upper G-suit um, had a faulty check valve in it that was not releasing all the pressure completely. And we have since fixed that problem and now uh, return these vests back to back to the pilots and they've been uh, flying with them for, for over a year over a year now and uh, we've not had any issues yeah. it's amazing you can spend so much time looking at, in the area you think it is and and there's so much complexity so many variables and oh actually it was back over here well sometimes uh, i mean i'm sure you've lost your keys <laughs> And as you're looking around for them, you go, oh, I didn't know I left them right here on the table. Uh, sometimes the smallest of things, uh, elusive, the, the most intelligent of people, 
and uh, I'm, we're just happy that it was found and we put these aircraft back in the air. Bo, uh, the last uh, F-22s I here came from Elmendorf, but I noticed these ones have got a different tail code, FF. Where are these ones based? These actually are our aircraft based out of Langley Air Force Base in Southern Virginia. Uh, what these aircraft are currently are, they are forward deployed to uh, the PACAF region in Okinawa, Japan. And what happened is uh, our Pacific commander, along with the Australian commander, was talking. Um, they brought up the idea of us coming down to support the Avalon International Air Show. Of course, we said yes. <laughs> and um, we worked out a package deal to, since it's a lot much closer to have our aircraft fly from Kadena, Okinawa, uh, then Alaska. And here we set. Well, there you go. That's the uh, F-22 Raptor, an absolutely fantastic bird and uh, maintaining it. Quite an incredible experience to learn about that one. And uh, yeah, we're totally jealous, Bo. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm glad you could come out. Anytime you guys are uh, in the States, come look me up and uh, hopefully we'll see you at an air show there and we'll be able to uh, do this again. Excellent, especially with a few beers. Absolutely. Okay, it's been great to walk around the aircraft and have a look at all the cool bits and pieces on it, but we all want to know what it's like to fly. And uh, Major Henry Shunts is here, and he's going to tell us all about it. Uh, Henry, thanks very much for spending some time with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, I'm, I'm sure you're the envy of every fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. I'm, I'm sure everybody wants to fly this aircraft. How is it that you found yourself not only to be flying it, but to be part of the demonstration team? Well, you know, uh, flying the F-22 is a time and a place, you know, you're always in the right time, you're always in the right place or at the right time. Uh, about eight years ago, I actually started flying it in 2005, uh, and I helped start up the initial squadron uh, out there at Langley Air Force Base, took it on its initial deployments all the way uh, overseas to Japan and everywhere else. I instructed in it down at Tyndall and uh, taught guys how to fly this aircraft uh, all the way from not even knowing what the Raptor is until they're uh, ready to go out and be combat fighter pilots. And then uh, out of that job, I was actually chosen to come back to Langley and uh, and do this job. This is now my third year coming up on uh, doing the F-22 demo. From an instructor's point of view, I mean, do people obviously, I guess, wouldn't stream directly into this jet? What would they be flying beforehand to, to get to the F-22? Well, the way that we do it is there's a lot of people who transition over from other aircraft. I flew the F-15C Eagle uh, prior, uh, but we do have what we call B-coursers or basic coursers, guys who come straight out of pilot training. They uh, fly the uh, F-16 for 10 rides with a guy in the back seat and then come over to the Raptor and uh, wind up flying that thing by themselves in their single-seat cockpit uh, after about 15-ish sims or so is when they start flying. So we, we have all ages uh, that come through the uh, the Raptor. Now that is a really interesting point because there are no dual-seat Raptors, are there? No, there's not. They're all single-seat Raptors. Yeah, much to our disgust, which means we ain't got no chance of getting a ride. No meteor rides there. <laughs> no. So no meteor rides, but I'll tell you, the first time you go up by yourself, it's uh, it's definitely a kick in the pants to really uh, enjoy how powerful this jet is and everything else. Yeah, so, so tell us about that. You're sitting in the seat. It's your first time. You've done all the sim rides and all the rest, but now you're sitting here. Sweaty palms, first time? Oh, absolutely sweaty palms. A little bit behind the timeline, too. At least I got the gear up, but by the end of the runway, I'm about 400 to 450 miles an hour just going, man, I am moving along. Uh, it's really actually uh, one of the cool things that we do is we give the guys a little taxi ride. So the day before they go fly, we put them into the jet. We have them taxi around the flight line just so they know the noises because it does sound different. We don't want them to get, you know, a little nervous from some of the things that are now, you know, normal for us noise-wise. Uh, and it's just one of the
of those things that help you get a little bit more calm so your palms are not as sweaty the first time you go fly. If you were to compare it to your experience in the F-15, if you are punching out, you know, with everything wide open in an F-15, how much different is it in the F-22? Well, the F-22 has 70,000 pounds of thrust, about 310 kilonewtons, I think if my calculations are correct. Uh, so we take off and our, our gross weight is about 68,000 pounds. We're already over a one-to-one thrust of weight. For the F-15, uh, on the other hand, that, that didn't really happen. We had, you know, trimmed on our engines and some things like that. But realistically, if those things were full bore, it was only about 50,000 pounds of thrust. So, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a kick in the pants to really put those things up to max AB when you go to take off. So you can really feel it. Real, like there's a real difference, real good big. Oh, there there is a there's a massive difference of uh, twenty thousand pounds of thrust when you uh, when you throw those things up. So typically, when you take off, if you're trying to save weight, is the idea that you would take off with a little less fuel, get up and take on the tanker, or do you would you typically take off you know full tanks? No, we plan on taking off full tanks uh, every single time. Even for the demo, I take off uh, full fuel weight. Uh, and burn that uh, pretty much burn all that out in about 15-ish minutes or so. So you're going full fuel uh, when you do the demo? Yes, when we do the demo, minus bombs, missiles, and bullets, uh, we are full up ready to go to war, and we are full up uh, configuration, full load of fuel. Wow, because uh, I know many groups, when they do the demos, they're, they're on half tank or things like that. And, and you go through that whole lot that normally would be a full mission, and, uh, oh, that's uh, 15 minutes. Huh? Yeah, in 15 minutes, we, uh, we burn a, a pretty decent amount of fuel uh, during that time. Now, if you're up there dogfighting with something like an F-16 or an F-15 or something like that, and you're one of those guys looking at one of you guys, what chance? (laughs) Well, you know, the funny part is I flew 15s against Raptors, then I came over to the Raptor and I've flown against 15s and a lot of other aircraft since then. And it's just one of those things where, you know, uh, if you're a good fighter pilot, you know, you can start to figure some things out, but this jet has, you know, unmatched capability just in power and maneuverability that you just can't hold on to. So it really, it's kind of unfair. We normally try to put ourselves at a disadvantage when we wind up in a dogfight with someone so that we can get that kind of training. Uh, But really, it's, it's almost unfair when we go out there. So for a typical mission profile now, you know, back in the past, back in the Cold War, obviously you guys going up against the Soviets of the Eastern Bloc, you know, what sort of tactics are you training for to go up against these days? Is it still that sort of doctrine that you're training against or are there new doctrines that perhaps you're looking at these days? Well, the Raptor, of course, is a, a versatile machine, and uh, we evolve with the rest of the world uh, as well. But realistically, it was made to replace the F-15C. So it's an air dominance fighter. It's one that goes out there, and we train to make sure that we can control the airspace so that all our joint coalition partners and everybody else can get out there and make sure that we uh, we can control the air. Because once we control the air, you know, we can do the rest uh, there on the ground. So realistically, it just comes down to making sure that we know what we're doing and that no matter who we face, we'll be ready for them. Now, uh, you've talked about a lot of power and maneuverability and kicks in the pants and things like that. Um, Now, this uh, air show that you're doing, the demo flight, uh, I understand you've uh, inherited that from the first person who made it was uh, Max Moga? That's correct. Uh, Max Moga was the uh, the first pilot uh, who did the demo back in 2007-2008. Uh, uh, Zeke Skalitsky did it for the next two years, and uh, now I've been doing it for the uh, past two and this year as well. So it's remained pretty much the same? It, the, uh, the demo has evolved just a little bit. We've added a few maneuvers since the early 2007 point, but for the past few years, it's been pretty much the same. Let's talk through what the, the demo basically consists of, what, what the maneuvers are, how you go from one to the other, and what you're doing in the cockpit is all that's going on. I mean, 
you know, you're, not, you're not just going woohoo and throwing the sticker out. I mean, yeah. what, what well, you, maybe you are. Well, <laughs> yeah. 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 No, the uh, the demo. It's about 15 minutes and it's about uh, 12 maneuvers to uh, 13 maneuvers right there. Uh, it's great. You know, you go to take off uh, and like I said, you throw those uh, those engines up to max AB, roll down the runway. You're off the runway in about a thousand feet. Uh, and you suck up the gear and then uh, when we get up to our speed of about 250 knots, we're going to go straight uphill. Uh, at that point, I'm just going to climb it out to uh, around 3,500 feet, flop it over itself and point straight back down to the earth, do a 360 degree roll, and then uh, we're, ba- we're back out. Uh, beyond that, we'll come back in and we'll do a uh, min radius turn right there. So coming in about 420 uh, knots or so. And then at the end of that 360 degree turn in front of the crowd, we'll go ahead and do a Cobra maneuver. So pull the pull the jet straight up into the vertical uh, and then go ahead and, uh, and nose forward. Once we uh, get back to level flight, I'll go ahead and I'll turn that jet 180 degrees around what we like to call the J turn. Uh, pretty much it's a high alpha uh, maneuver where we just go ahead and, uh, and kick the nose back around. It looks like a pirouette uh, almost. Come out of that. We show the bottom of the jet, the weapons bay doors. We open them up so uh, people can see where uh, where everything hides because we do fly with a very clean profile. And then uh, after that, I do the dedication pass. The dedication pass is pretty much uh, we just show the top side of the jet combined about uh, 0.8 to 0.9 Mach uh, and make some noise as we go by. But it's dedicated to you know the troops and our joint and coalition uh, partners uh, that have sacrificed over the years. After that, we come back in. I'll aim back at the sky again and uh, do a 360 degree roll. I'll flop it over itself again at the top and then I'll do a 360 degree pedal turn what most people like to call the flat turn you know what looks to be a flat spin Uh, I'll turn that around in a 360 degree uh, motion and then uh, exit back out on a really strong wind day like today uh, I have the option of also uh, going 180 degrees stopping the turn and going 180 degrees back um, which is probably what we'll wind up seeing today I come back in and I do uh, the power loop the power loop is pretty much where I take the jet and I turn it around one spot in the sky so it's a uh, instead of a conventional type of loop I pretty much go up over the top and then just wind up uh, flopping around 180 degrees right there in front of everyone, come out uh, into a loaded roll. I do a tail slide uh, following that one, and then uh, coming out of that one, a slow speed pass followed by a high speed pass, and then uh, uh, Bob Hoover, the great you know air show um, legend in the United States. We have a maneuver where we pretty much roll underneath what I've been told here in Australia is called the suicide roll, but uh, we, we, do, uh, we do two of those uh, to end out the show. Wow, and what kind of G-forces are you feeling up there? What's you going through? Uh, you know, you're pulling anywhere uh, up to the max limit of the aircraft, so, I mean, you're, you're hitting that 9, uh, just slightly uh, over 9 Gs there on some of these maneuvers, so. Oh, so you're, you're basically being shoved all over the place in that cockpit while the plane's going around this guy. Yeah, I, I, I do button myself in uh, quite tightly so I don't uh, get rocked all over the place, but, uh, yeah, you're, you, you have some serious forces on your body in all directions. I take it there's points in the maneuvers... Uh, between between those different maneuvers where you're assessing fuel, you're checking the systems, you're taking a look around, where you're at, all that kind oh, of thing. Absolutely. Everything is based off of the show center point. Of course, our crowd is a priority, you know, on making sure that they're safe and all that we do. I have a safety observer on the ground who's watching out for other aircraft, airplanes, everything else that I'm talking to consistently about my fuels, my altitudes, and all the rest of that. Okay, mate. Well, uh, that's an amazing display, and uh, we're really looking forward to it because you did the low, uh, the low demo the other day because of the clouds. 
and that just stopped the whole show. Everyone, the, the trade halls emptied, the media tent was vacant within milliseconds of you starting up. Uh, absolutely incredible. So we're really looking forward to seeing a high show. Now we've got some scud around here, a little bit of uh, little puffies, and this is good. Oh, yeah. good. That's what we hope to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those little puffy clouds aren't a problem. Nice. Okay. Well, it's always uh, an awesome thing to talk to fighter pilots, but I tell you what, if I was a fighter pilot, this is what I'd want to do. Henry, uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us. Again, thanks for having me out. I appreciate yeah. it. Hi, this is Damien Rose from Playing Crazy Down Under. I'm with Stephen Buckle from Cub Crafters. We are standing in front of a very, very beautifully engineered aircraft, the Carbon Cub. Stephen, can you tell us a little about yourself and where you've come from as far as aviation goes? Yeah, look, I started flying actually with trikes and came up through the um, the very light, ultralight, weight shift aeroplanes. Got about a 1,000 hours on those and um, flying here in Victoria or in Australia is, uh, gets a bit cold in winter. As I got older, I thought I was looking for uh, something that uh, had a heater. Yes. And this carbon cub is the only thing that has um, come close to the power and weight and performance of the modern trikes and so I got into these. Lovely. And Cub Crafters, where's that come from? Cub Crafters is a company based in Yakima in America, in the Washington state, right. just out the back of Seattle. They have about 85 employees and they're making about 60 of these a year. At the moment doing really well, they're flat out. There's about a six or nine month wait on a brand new one. Yep. And so far in Australia over the last two years have sold 10 of these. Wow, that's fantastic. Yep. So the uptake's been good and you foresee the future on the improve? Yeah, look, it's got to improve. It's pretty quiet at the moment. Everyone's pretty quiet. But yep. the interest in this carbon cub with 180 horsepower and the big tyres on it is fantastic. People recognise it from all of the fancy YouTube stuff that they do in America. All the short takeoff and landing stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and this plane actually straight out of the box has won um, the Alaskan short field competition before. Wow. Yeah, it is just a fun aeroplane. It is super fun to fly. You don't need a runway necessarily. You don't need a flat paddock even. And it'll take off in if you've got a breeze it'll take off in next to no time and so talking a bit about the specifications and performance of the aircraft normal cruise what kind of airspeed would we be looking at and, and what kind of range would we expect the aircraft is so powerful that it's a sort of a leading question because it's got a really nice comfortable cruise around 85 90 knots but if you're in a hurry and the, and the day's ending you can get 110 knots out of it it doesn't seem to matter whether you put big tires on it or little tires on it it just uses a bit more fuel so your fuel capacity burns is somewhere between 20 litres and 45 litres, depending, depending on what on, you're doing. Depending on where you've pushed the throttle. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And the engine type in the Carbon Cub? Look, it's a it's an O320, which has been modified, and Cub Crafters are calling it the CC340. Right. Like homing 320, which has now got 180 horsepower, not 150 horsepower. Fuel injected? No, carburetor. Um, and I've noticed, as I've looked in the cockpit here, there's a... Um, an iPad. So we're using iPad for our... Yeah, look, there's a few different sorts of panels which you can spec the plane with. There's about four that are standard, and the iPad panel, they're calling it, is mm-hmm. um, one of the standard panels, and it's made for it. It fits in there perfectly. The other the other steam gauges work around it, and it, uh, the iPad uh, certainly makes it good for um, everything you need. Well, it looks beautiful in the aircraft. As I was telling you earlier on, one of my bucket list things to do was to fly a J3, and I found a J3 Cub to fly, and it's subsequently been sold and actually came 
come down here to Victoria from Queensland. The company that I'm renting aircraft from are looking at a carbon carb, so I'm going to be pushing them and pushing them. The thing is that they're just so much fun. The power makes it safe. You can get away from the ground really quickly if you have to. And the ability for this plane to do whatever you can think of, except it's not aerobatic, is, um, is pretty amazing. Has this got a bigger brother or other siblings? They make another one which is called a Sport Cub, which is basically exactly the same aeroplane um, with 100 horsepower, the O200 Continental engine in it, which is a, a really sweet little plane. That's where they started with. Both the Cub, the Sport Cub and the Carbon Cub fit into the light sport category, registered, you know, 24. They have got a big brother, which is the uh, Top Cub, which is basically a copy of the old Super Cub, but made brand new. So this aircraft, I notice, is, is RAL's registered. Yeah. Any that are VH registered? The Top Cub is, um, is certified and VH registered. You, you can register these as a VH registered plane, but it still has a 600 kilo limit. And where can you see this all going, Steve? We're based in Tyab in Victoria, and people are welcome to give me a call and come down and have a look and a fly. That'd be great. Otherwise, um, the factory in Yakima has always got um, people there that are cruising through looking at it. They're very friendly and open for everybody to go and have a look at the factory. And, and a lot of people who are thinking of buying one actually go you know, through there and look at the factory. And, and where can our listeners find you on the web? Uh, the best place to start is at cubcrafters.com. Right, yeah. And work their way through that and they'll find a link to my site there. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time, Stephen, and we look forward to seeing more of the Carbon Cub and, and obviously Cub Crafters in Australia. Thank you. The need? The need for speed? JetRide Australia is a premier fighter experience in the country and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, JetRide tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make your dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash pcdu or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. JetRide. Forget the rest, fly with the best. PCDU's Avalon 2013 series is brought to you by Avplan. Get more for your EFB. Avsoft.com.au Classic Flight Bag. For those who identify the sky as their office, grab your bag and go. ClassicFlightBag.com Sennheiser. Sennheiser S1 Digital. The quiet revolution in aviation headsets. World Flight Planner. Plan your flight like a pro and get worldwide coverage with World Flight Planner. WorldFlightPlanner.com Eco 2000 ZI400 Aircraft Colloidal Cleaner. Regular airframe washing is an important part of corrosion protection. And Red Baron Adventures, redbaron.com.au Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breathe and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Dave Barrell from the Brightling Wingwalkers team. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. 
Yeah, hi. Mate, how long have you been flying for? About 24 years. What got you into flying? Just the fact that I grew up near Duxford Airfield, which is the Imperial War Museum in the UK, so I'm about four kilometres off the end of 06, so when I was 10 or 11 years old, there's always fighter planes flying over, and I just thought, well, that's what I want to do when I'm older. Yeah, it's a done deal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, how long have you been flying Stearman for? Well, I owned a Stearman myself for 12 years, a standard one. That was kind of the end of the 90s. It's probably since about 1996 I've been flying Stearman, and I've been on the team now for seven years. And how do you get into the team? Well, fortunately, from my Stearman experience, I had already had a display uh, authorisation with aerobatics and tail chase, uh, lead, follow, formation lead, follow. And, you know, I was cleared down to 30 feet. So it was quite a natural progression to, to move up to the larger Stearman, obviously, with the wing walkers on the, on the top wing. Now, it's, uh, is it a stock standard Stearman? Any special modifications aside from the wing walking harness? It's, a, it's an original standard Stearman from 1940, but we've modified them with four ailerons. So we have a slightly better roll rate. It's, it doesn't lie any fires, but it's, it's a really gentle air, aircraft to fly. Uh, we have 450 horsepower engine, which is the uh, Pratt & Whitney R985 with a nine foot propeller. Tips go supersonic on takeoff, so it uh, makes a n- n- raspy sound, a bit like the T6. But apart from that, yeah, it's, uh, it's a World War II Stearman. Yeah, we definitely know when you guys are taking off, that's for sure. Yeah, lots of noise and smoke. Yeah. <laughs> You've got the harness on the top for the lady to be uh, connected into. What other mods for getting the people in and out do you have? Well, none really. There's a safety cable which goes from the front cockpit up to the back of the rig on the top wing. And the girls wear a safety harness around their waists. So they're always tethered to the aircraft. And then, uh, as you say, we have a five-point aviation-style military harness uh, on the wing. And what does having all that gear on the wing do? Is there much noticeable drag before the um, girls go out? Not really, no. There's not much difference flying the aircraft without the rig and with the rig. Very, very small. Yeah, it's hardly noticeable. It all changes when you put someone on the wing. Yeah, exactly. Once you put someone up there on that top wing, you're there. I guess that's pretty much right over the centre of gravity? Yeah, they actually move forward slightly, about a metre. So you, you do get um, a bit of a nose-down change in attitude, so you have to trim back slightly and, and obviously add more power because immediately you get a load more drag. It's basically just uh, more power and a bit of trim change, and that's pretty much the only thing? Yeah, And uh, but while we're flying, obviously we always have to be mindful that we've got uh, one of the girls on the wing. We have communication via hand signals. We just adapt if you like, to fly the aircraft uh, with somebody standing on the wing rather than not. And uh, yeah, change the altitudes and routines and things like that? Yeah, we, we practiced all that at the beginning of the season and obviously we, we stick to our display criteria. You know, obviously we come down to say 100 feet is perhaps the rule here and 150 metres from the crowd. So we, we bear that, all of that in mind as well. The formation leader has to take that into consideration. What kind of uh, manoeuvres are you doing during the uh, during the show? Well, we, we normally start off, if weather allows, with a, with a loop from 1,000 feet and we, we dive to about uh, 160 knots and sorry miles per hour and pull for a loop which is about 4g pull in formation line abreast with the girls on the wing and then we do a low routine which uh, is between say 100 and 500 feet uh, we do bumps where we're pulling at the uh, at the bottom of the dip and then pushing negative g over the top girls are maneuvering themselves into handstands lying on their sides etc and we stay in close formation for the whole uh, sequence whole routine we do a b break where we uh, move away from each other and do opposition passes. It's open cockpit for you but it's very seriously open cockpit for these three young ladies who uh, have the joy of doing the ultimate bug smashing routine uh, you know, it's like, do you ever find that uh, you get the situation, you come down you got any grime, bugs in your teeth, that kind of thing? Definitely, um, we're obviously meant to smile to the crowd as well so occasionally you get some in your teeth <laughs> Now Sarah, how long have you been with the team? 
Uh, this is my eighth season with the team. What got you into uh, the interesting role of standing on top of an aircraft while it does routines? I saw the teams playing at an air show and I thought it was awesome, um, particularly being women up there on the wing. I love dancing and I love flying, so it was a perfect combination. So I was really inspired to approach them and find out if I could become part of the team. Now, Danielle, how long have you been with the team? Um, this is my seventh season. It's something I always wanted to do since I was a little kid, so I'm very lucky to be living the dream. All you wanted to do since you were a kid was stand on top of a bi-wing aircraft and dance, is that right? I know, it sounds a bit crazy, but my mum and dad took me to an air show and I was just inspired by the, the ladies that were on the wing at the time. I just knew from that point it looked like the ultimate roller coaster, and to get to do that for a living, well, nothing beats it. Now, Freya, for yourself, how long with the team? This is my second season. I started in April last year, and the same as Sarah and Danielle. I've just always wanted to do it, and it's my dream job and I'm just very privileged. Now there is a uh, theme here, uh, the three of you are petite, you're uh, quite small so I imagine the size and weight is part of an issue of the training and, and the, the acceptance requirements. We're small but we're strong. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah I mean you do have to be fairly petite because it's mainly to minimise drag because every movement we make you know when we wave the guys can feel it through the controls and when they're flying so yeah being petite definitely does help especially when we're doing handstands because our rigs can rotate so we wouldn't want to bump our head on the on the spin round. Yeah, that would slow things down for you. <laughs> Sarah, what's involved in getting from the cockpit up onto the wing? Well, we have um, a safety harness around our waist um, with a wire and carabiner. So like Dave said, we're always tethered to the aircraft. They give us a tap on the shoulder to let us know when it's safe to transfer and we confirm that we've heard that signal. Um, and basically, we stand up onto the cockpit seat and then you lift up your hand and then, of course, that's in the slipstream from a propeller and your hand gets blown back like this. I remember the first time I did it, I thought, how am I going to be able to climb up if I can't even lift my hand? But it just really, you know, you just need a lot of focus and a lot of strength um, and you grab hold of the handhold, stand up and then we stand just in front of Dave's windscreen on the little black part there, um, kneel on the top wing and then pull ourselves up through um, the wires into the rig and of course once you're up there you've then got to try and get the straps over your shoulders and we secure them um, to bungee so they're in place for us um, but it's still quite difficult to grab them over your shoulders and then try and get the, uh, the safety pin in and locked and then we signal to Dave that we're in and locked and ready for the display. Wow, how much practice? Uh, lots, lots and lots. <laughs> lots in the hangar, just climbing up and down, up and down, up and down. And then the first time we fly, they are very slow and uh, give us uh, know what the sensations are like. And then gradually, um, once we're strapped up there and secure into the rig, they start flying gradually faster and faster and introduce the aerobatics and the different sensations. And that's when we start having the real fun. And, uh, I mean, I love doing aerobatics. It's one of my favourite things when I can handle it. But what's it like to actually be doing aerobatics out in the slipstream with nothing around you? I mean, the view must be amazing. It is. It's absolutely amazing. And we can see the crowd waving at us and we're just waving back. It's just like the most amazing feeling ever. It's so fun. I was interested in the uh, coordination aspect. I mean, how much training must you go through pre-season between all of you to make sure that you've got this routine down and set so that you can come out to places like this and do that air show flawlessly? Well, we, we have a set routine. It's almost like a dance routine on the wings. There's a lead wing walker and a formation wing walker. So the lead wing walker will give head signals to, to say which manoeuvre's coming up next. And then in that way, we can make sure that we get it in time. Look as graceful as possible. And I imagine you're watching those, uh, manu- those hand signals as well? Yes. So uh, what we do is we practice, as the girls have said, in the months leading up to the season. Myself and the other pilots, we talk about the routine that we're going to do. And then we show that to the girls. And the girls then form their own manoeuvres on the wing exactly in formation as to the formation that we're doing. Now you've all mentioned dance and so on do you have a background in dancing? 
Um, I do. I did quite a lot of dancing as I was growing up. And like I said, that's what really inspired me to join the team, the fact that girls were dancing on the wing. And it also helps to have a dance or gymnastic background um, to look graceful on the wing. So it's quite difficult to look graceful against 150 mile an hour wind force. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I was at a helicopter one time with the panels off and I totally forgot and went, oh, what's that over there? And my hand's back in the slipstream. So I, my hats are off. That's, that's amazing. Okay, so can you talk us through what the uh, manoeuvres are that you do? We'll start with you, Freya. What, what kind of manoeuvres are that you're doing while the aircraft are throwing themselves around the sky? When we're in the rig, the rig can actually rotate so we can do handstands um, and waving. We go onto our side and wave. We put our legs up. We do something called the star where we lean over to one side and put our leg right higher. So there's lots of different things we can do and then at the end we actually unstrap from the rig but we always have our safety harness and then we, do, we sit on top of the wing and we do some manoeuvres there. Finally we climb, we put our foot just there above the window screen and then we do an arabesque we hold our leg up but we're always holding on tight and then we climb down to in the cockpit to land so lots of different maneuvers <laughs> lots of flexibility and uh, a bit of strength yeah oh yes definitely i mean we build our muscles up and uh, we always say by the end of the season we can boy- beat the boys in arm wrestles <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't work out on the wing definitely that wouldn't surprise me so where to next for the season uh, we're going to sydney to do some flying um, over the opera house and the bridge so we're quite excited about that and then we're going to go back to england ready for our european season which starts in may you said you're sitting on front of the wing now that's probably about what five feet between the propeller and your knees and feet what's that like we know that we definitely can't reach it because we've got the harness that won't allow us to actually touch it but it's definitely quite daunting that it's there i mean the first time that i wing walked i definitely felt very aware of the propeller but we know it's safe no that's all good anything else you'd like to say no just uh, we really enjoy being in australia for the first time on behalf of myself and the team you know it's been a really good trip and um we've had perfect weather almost there was a little well there was a little bit of home like weather when you first got here wasn't there yeah there was a little bit of rain that we're used to um, but it's lovely and sunny here today so we're putting on our sunscreen and getting ready to go up for the show later on <laughs> okay ladies and gents thank you very much Stuart Wilson from Aero Magazine. It's been a long time coming, but welcome to playing Crazy Down Under. Yes, thank you. You've been threatening to do this to me for ages, and we finally got around to it <laughs> here, here in beautiful Avalon. <laughs> so many shows, so little time. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, mate, now, you've been producing Aero Magazine for quite some time. Yeah, we're coming up to, would you believe, 10 years later yep. this year, yep. which is incredible. You know, where has the time gone? <laughs> Indeed. I, mean, I, I was so much younger then. <laughs> <laughs> so much younger, so much more hair, all that stuff. <laughs> oh, I've still got my hair. Yeah, no, you're doing well with that. <laughs> I was talking more about mine. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I remember when it first came out. I think I started at number two. I remember thinking about the differences with Aero because it was almost written for the pilot enthusiast community, not the general aviation world. It was uh, full of great photos. It had some great articles. And there was a different feel to it. What were you trying to achieve when you set out with it? I wasn't deliberately trying to do something different. That's just the way it happened because the magazine's a bit odd. It, it really reflects me and my interests, which is basically anything with wings or rotors. That's why it's got some commercial stuff, some military stuff, some general aviation stuff, modern, historic, and the contents are decided quite strangely. There are a couple of stories in each issue which I know we're going to be doing in advance, but generally it works like this. I wake up in the morning, I have to put the contents page together, and it depends on the mood I'm in (laughs) and what I fancy. 
So I'd like to say it's all meticulously planned, but that's the way I do it. And once we get going, of course, it is yeah. meticulously planned and performed. But it just depends on the whim of the editor. Because <laughs> you've also got stuff on aero modelling and books and yeah, videos. A bit of everything, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so successful. And it's not just the enthusiasts who like it. Our subscribers and readers include you know, chiefs of, uh, of Air Force and CEOs of major corporations all the way, I was going to say down, but maybe up, <laughs> to, to, to the likes of you and me, the enthusiasts. And at the end of the day, that's what I am. I'm an aeroplane nut, an enthusiast, who happens to be able to write a bit. Now, how did you get to the point as an aeroplane nut enthusiast to be able to write a bit? Oh, well, I remember it vividly. One of the very few things I remember from my young days, I was when the first uh, Avro Vulcan bomber came to Australia in 1956 when I was quite young. My dad took me out to Mascot Airport where I was, and I can still picture it walking around the side of this hangar. I was four years old, actually, and there was this massive white thing, and that was the end of me. From that moment, I was an aeroplane nut. Yep. You'd, you'd been bitten by aeroneurophycosis and you were gone. Yep, and it's still with me, and I'm happy to say that I'm still as boyish in my attitude to the whole thing as I was then. If you know, Even now, if I hear a noise of an aeroplane flying over home outside and I'm not quite sure what it is, I'll race out to have a look. <laughs> well, I've noticed that there's been a few times that we'll hear there'll be a, a noise of an aircraft in the sky and I'll race out to see what it is and almost run into you coming out of wherever yes. you are. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope we never grow out of that because yeah. the, the, the day we do it's all over, isn't it? Yep. But I think we're safe. I think we're still basically four years old when it comes to that sort of stuff. <laughs> So you've obviously, um, you've had the love of aviation, and how's that progressed through to get you to the point where you could actually even consider starting a magazine? I mean, what were you thinking? Well, I'm obviously an idiot. That's the the answer to that. (laughs) My background in aviation is, and you may remember, I was with Australian Aviation Magazine for 18 years or so before we started Aero, plus all the books and all the rest of it. But it's actually my second career. I didn't start writing until I was in my uh, late 20s. Believe it or not, I'm a musician by formal training, a a classically trained musician, old chap. Oh, I say. Yes. Bravo. And played in uh, the the oboe was my classical (laughs) instrument. Now, that I would never have picked. Well, it's true. (laughs) And uh, but I was my, my mindset was more rock and roll than classical music, so I was in bands and I worked in record production and stuff like that. And then I had a, a radical change of career and um, started writing originally motor racing stuff. I was editor of a motor racing magazine, Racing Co News, and the aviation stuff was the natural progression because that's always been my first love. So here I am. Um 60 books and 8 million magazine articles later. Yeah, you've got quite a number of books, technical and um, in, in Australian service and yeah. so on. Yeah, oh, that series of 13 books, thats that was amazing. That's what made me, really, and it's still regarded as being sort of the standard reference. I refer to them every day myself. They're really good. I'm, glad, I'm glad I wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, do you fly yourself? I do have a private pilot's licence, although I don't fly as often as I'd like to, but I originally learned to fly when I was 17. So, so single engine, or have you done more? Uh, I did have my multi but no longer but it's basically light aircraft yeah not not cheap to maintain is it no No. it isn't now uh, getting back to the magazine one of the things i've noticed right from the start at the front you've got your uh, wilson's commentary which (laughs) is a nice play on the wilson's promontory thank you i'm glad you picked that up (laughs) (laughs) it would have been hard to miss (laughs) you live in the melbourne area in the victorian area uh, or like to go out into the bush area you know about wilson's prom it's a classic part of the uh, victorian and i'm not even from victoria it was just a nice pun so, so there you go. With Wilson's commentary, you don't really pull any punches. And it's something I've noticed right from the start. There's been a number of times I've been reading it going, 
well, it's about bloody time somebody wrote that. It's interesting you should say that because I have um, some colleagues who are editors of magazines, other magazines overseas, and they keep complimenting me on actually offering an opinion, which is the whole point of an editorial. Exactly. You see a lot of magazines, all the editorial is a summary of what's in the magazine, and I thought, well, <laughs> bugger it. <laughs> it's an editorial. I'm going to take advantage of it. So, And that is the first thing that just about everybody reads when they get the magazine. And yes, I am guilty of having the odd opinion, but, you know, that's my vehicle for doing it and I, I, I make no apologies. It's what we say about playing crazy if anyone cares to listen to the uh, little disclaimer clip that we've got at the end but we're just opinionated enthusiasts yes. and we've appears that you and I have found different ways of uh, getting our uh, <coughs> opinions out there. Well one of, one of my friends a couple of years ago said to me gee you're very opinionated Stuart and I, I said I thanked him for the compliment and, but then I said yes but only when I'm right. <laughs> I, I must admit I've gone to write a couple of articles or blog pieces and so on and I've been like right this is what I'm going to do and I start and I do it I've got enough of what I think is right but I'm like okay I'm not just going to write I'm going to do a bit more research and a bit more research and three days later of fitting it in around everything else I'm like okay yeah I was right but I've got to change my tone or yes. no here I go I've got the evidence. One thing I always do I write an editorial and I, it may be slightly controversial or whatever I don't send it off to the production people immediately I leave it a day read it again the next day and just in case there's something in there that I was maybe a bit hot-headed about <laughs> they get carried away yeah but you've got to be you know you've got to be a bit careful but generally they don't change very much and I'm entitled to an opinion and yes. if, if I have one that's slightly controversial I back I, I have the facts backing it up Exactly. So I'm not at all worried about it. And people love it. Yeah, no, it's great. I think it's yet another part of the magazine that I enjoy reading. This is a topic that you may want to not talk about. In a few of your recent commentaries, you've been discussing some issues with HARS, yes. the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. Now, we'd heard discussion of this through the grapevine in various places, but it's the first time I've actually seen it in print. Yes. Are you able to tell us about that? All, all I can say about that is, is basically repeat what I wrote in the, the last issue of the magazine. The, the, there are certain facts, uh, one of which is that my membership and my wife, mem- uh, Wendy's membership, have been cancelled, even though they have taken our money and uh, I've even got my membership card in my wallet. Um, that's, that's a personal issue. Other issues, I don't know if I want to go into too much detail except to say that I'm I've been a supporter of HARS for many, many years. We have promoted them where we can in my various publications and in other areas, and I'm very disappointed in the way we're being treated. I feel like we've been kicked in the teeth. As for issues outside that, time will um, tell how they evolve. But it's far from over. I get that feeling, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. I think that's all I'm prepared to say at the moment. I can totally understand that. Thank you for uh, expanding on it a little. And moving right along into the future, where do you see the magazine going? What's... Well, the future's already here in one sense. We've had a digital version of the magazine for over a year now, although we kept it quiet initially. We just wanted to test it, uh, you know, get the mechanics of it right. So we're starting to promote that now. So I don't think the print side of things will ever disappear, but we have to be realistic and there's going to be more and more um, digital stuff. As for the magazine itself, the content, well, I just I think I'll just keep going the way I am. It seems to be working. I'm enjoying it. As I said, it reflects me as much as anything else. And happily, there's a lot of readers out there who, 
like that mix of, of content and attitude. As long as the subscriptions and the uh, store sales continue. Well, that's right. And, uh, okay, we're still here after nearly 10 years. We're paying the bills. I reckon that means we've been successful. Yep. So do you see um, it progressing? Like you've got the electronic. I take it that's an iPad. Yeah, yeah, yep. that's correct. So how do you see the digital world expanding? Um, well, it, it is going to expand. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I'm not a techno whiz. I'm afraid I have to take advice from those who do know about these things. But I guess at some stage there's going to be more video involved with the publications that, that are available for iPad or whatever. In fact, that's happening already with a lot of publications. So it's just a matter of resources because it does cost a lot of money to get that up and running. So we're just taking it in small steps. Small steps. Yeah. 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 You can um, leap too far and you can make the wrong decisions. And you end up, you end up in trouble. So yeah. we're being um, cautious about it. That's understandable. Conservative, which is most unusual for me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the photos, the articles, and the opinions—not conservative, but the approach to getting into the new age. Yes. Yes. Well, sensible is probably a better way of putting it. <laughs> so it doesn't send us broke. <laughs> That's a very good good piece. There. Yeah. Stuart Wilson, thank you so much for taking some time and having a chat with us about Aero Magazine. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Ben Wickham, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks for having me, Grant. Hey, no worries, man. Now, we won't talk anything about your job. So uh, you're an audience member. You've been following us for a while. And it's great to run into you at the uh, occasional show here and there. Mate, how are you finding Avalon this year? Really enjoying it this year. It's great to see the F-22 fly. Put on a good display yesterday. The USF-16 puts on a really good display. And I think the highlight was the, I think it's called 10-6 of Dynamite, a US aerobatic team who just did spectacular display flying through exhaust and flying through smoke from explosions. That was thing else. Yeah, it was definitely. And that final pass as they come down really low and on an angle uh, together in formation? Yeah, uh, it, it's hard to describe, but they had, uh, it was a pit special of a, some sort and an, ex, uh, an extra, and they were both side slipping, but it looked like they were flying, leaning into each other only a few feet apart. That obviously, some of the top aerobatic pilots in the world, so good to have them here too. Yeah, no, it was a pretty fascinating little display. So, anything else? What's another highlight you're looking for while you're here? Just trying to think. Uh, enjoyed the exhibition. Brought my mum down. She's a, she's a lapsed pilot, so she enjoyed meeting with the uh, the Australian Women Pilots Association. So she's I think she's been enjoying it and is looking to get back into it. That's excellent. It'd be great to have her back in the air. Well, yeah, I'd support that if only because it subsidises my own flying. <laughs> hey, mum, you need a co-pilot. Exactly, exactly. Ben, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for Timbo's Tarmac. So TC Ben today instead of Grant, and uh, we're back with Tim for uh, Timbo's Tarmac for uh, Friday's edition. Uh, this is the night show. We're doing it a little bit early. It's not quite dark yet. And uh, the noise you're hearing in the background is actually the caribou trying to outdo the F-22 for noise as they try and park it somewhere. Yeah, Timbo, what's, uh, what's news for the tarmac for today? Uh, lots of crosswind today. That's always been the challenge for us, but uh, we've got through it so far. Okay, and I've heard the uh, the Hudson is not with us at present due to the crosswind, so they're uh, out off-field at the present time. Yeah, they chickened out. Point Cook was at the uh, end of departure today, so bad luck. We'll get them back later on. Okay, and uh, then for the night show, you guys uh, going to have a little bit going on for the night show tonight or pretty quiet? Yeah, we're going to get our chairs, sit underneath the camera and watch what goes on. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, the uh, couple of the warbirds have just gone up for a fly and uh, they don't do a lot after dark, so it would be a nice, quiet night for you guys. Sit on the camper and enjoy the show. That's it. We'll uh, park these two when they come back, put the ropes up, let the public in, and we'll sit back and relax. Excellent. And then uh, tomorrow come back, do it all again? Do it all again, yes. Uh, get through tonight first and uh, back into it tomorrow. But, yeah, full program again tomorrow for flying. So uh, do it all again. 
Wonderful. Thanks, Timbo, and uh, we'll catch up with you again after tomorrow's show. Indeed. Much happier to speak to you, Ben, than that other bloke. <laughs> Thanks, mate. See ya. In the keyhole with Papa Smurf. ATC, Ben, we're in the keyhole now. We've got uh, Papa Smurf. We've found a quiet place to have a bit of a chat, and uh, Friday is the longest day especially if you're in the keyhole, because uh, a few of the old girls go out flying in the dark, see the Connie. So, uh, Smurf, it's going to be a long night. We're getting used to it, though. We've done it, well, some of us have done enough of them now, not to worry too much about them. It does get tiring, but uh, we can handle it, even at my age. The old girl Connie, she uh, came in today, graced us with her presence. Yep, Connie came in today and she brought oil, oil with her, and he bought an offsider that's got as much oil around as well, the old <laughs> Catalina, the old maritime reconnaissance one. They had a, a range, an endurance of 22 hours. That's a long time. That's a long time. In an aeroplane, that's yep. more. The other one they brought in with them was the uh, caribou, the old caribou that the Air Force had for, oh, 40 odd years. We had a bit of problem with it this morning when they refueled it. it uh, developed a major fuel leak so at the moment it's been taken up to the hangar to fix and the other caribou that's here is taking, doing the displays so that's tonight as well we've got the c-17 going up tonight it'll go up and do its trick other than that they're the only ones we've got out of here tonight with the uh, the fast jets just across the road, we've got the F-22s just finished its display and the uh, Rhinos are up doing their foursome. And after that, uh, I think the F-16s are off again. So it's going to be a busy old night uh, over in the keyhole and then uh, oh, yeah. you'll be back into it first thing in the morning. Right and early, 8 o'clock we'll be here. <laughs> Ready for a big long day tomorrow. Okay, thanks Papa Smurf and uh, we'll have a chat to you at the end of tomorrow if, uh, if everyone's still awake after the long night tonight and the early start. Righto, Ben, and you tell Grant to stop knocking off early. <laughs> thanks, mate. Well, there we go. Another uh, packed episode, Grant. Uh, I tell you what, uh, now the public are going to be back tomorrow in force, uh, looking for another big day at uh, Avalon, and uh, we're looking forward to a lot more aerial displays this time. I'm looking forward to getting out tomorrow and talking to a number of the uh, aerobatic pilots of the uh, piston pounder type. Yeah, that's right, mate. We're uh, going to take Damien and uh, Ben and anyone else who wants to come along and uh, head down to the uh, aerobatic section uh, where uh, we've got Matt Hall's aircraft parked and also have Chris Baru and uh, Melissa's there. Bob and Laurie are there and a number of the other folks who are in town. So uh, we're going to try and uh, organise a few interviews there. Uh, We're also supposed to be kicking the day off with a chat with a P3 Orion crew and uh, that's been putting on a reasonably spirited display. So looking forward to chatting with them too. Absolutely. Now, uh, Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer, you've been working for us all week as our infield editor and doing a wonderful job. Uh, Now, we actually managed to get you out of the media centre today to uh, take in a few of the displays. What was the uh, highlight of your day? Well, I think it wasn't so much a highlight it was almost an epiphany. I was walking to the car park at the end of the day with yourselves, Steve and Grant, and uh, as we were going through, the F, uh, the 16-4 Super Hornets were flying overhead. And I think I'd mentioned in one of the very early views, in fact discussing Avalon two years ago in 2011, that I didn't like loud noise. And I'd been to Formula One races with a previous employer and just listened to the whine and gone, no, I don't like that. But as we were walking out, there were these four Super Hornets going absolutely nuts. And I think I turned to Grant and I said, I love that sound. You buggers have got me hooked. There you go. So when are we watching Top Gun? (laughs) <laughs> I think that could be a, oh, it's a bit late. Maybe tomorrow, no, no? No, I reckon Anthony's going home tomorrow, so we need to finish this recording and uh, get the tally on. 
Oh, yeah, I'm in for that. <laughs> all right, well, let's stay forward, Avalon 2013. We want to thank all of you for the uh, you know heaps of uh, positive feedback we've been getting for this uh, series. It's been uh, very gratifying, a lot of hard work, and uh, still two days to go. So uh, we'll be back with you tomorrow. Yeah, I might actually get more than four hours sleep tonight. Yay! <laughs> you can dream. Cheers, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. You have been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under's Avalon 2013 series. Look for our video coverage on our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Plain Crazy Down Under, and follow all the Avalon action on Twitter at the hashtag Avalon13. Contact us anytime with feedback, suggestions, or advertising inquiries at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media podcast. Okay, well, of course, uh, it's all well and good to walk, walk around. Blech. Okay, well, it's great to walk around the aircraft and have a look at all. Uh, <laughs> Three, two, one. Okay, it's been great to walk around the aircraft. Try. Levels, levels, levels. 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 It doesn't appear to be working properly. It is, it is day four, therefore it is 104. Let's just call it episode 200 and ask for donations. <laughs> <laughs> can you put that in the outtakes? Well, look, Bess has gone to bed, so we can say anything we like about him now. Woohoo! Maybe he didn't see that scratch I put on his plane today. What, just underneath the PCDU sticker you put there? That's right, I covered it up. He'll, he will never suspect a thing. Solid light. On medium gain, <coughs> and given we edit this to make ourselves sound good, we'll be doing the same for you and I. Okay, so if I'm holding it here, let's just have a look at the levels. Um, just say a few things that are going to get cut out. Mary had a little lamb as her, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, no one else was game enough to go. That'll work. That could make the blooper real, actually. <laughs> <laughs>